Our passage this morning is 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. Uh, two weeks ago, we were in the earlier part of the chapter looking at uh, divisions between men and women in the worship of the Lord and how they were conducting themselves. And now we come to another matter of worship, how the church is conducting its worship around the Lord's Supper. As Paul speaks to the Corinthians and to us this morning, would we be changed by what God's Word has to say with the help of His Spirit? 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 34 But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to your word. Your word is described as bread for us, as a means for our feeding and nourishment, and we pray that we would feed upon it now. Acknowledging that we need your strength. We need you to nourish us. That we don't have within ourselves what we need on our own. And so we come to you. And Lord, by your spirit, speak to us. Instruct us. Convict us. Equip us. Send us as those commissioned by your word, with your word, to one another and to others. Would what I have to say this morning be your words for your people and all that fall short be quickly forgotten? 
This I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. When you come to a passage like this, we see a truth that's true not only for the way that we worship, but for the rest of life, that sometimes the things that we pursue for our good end up being for our ill. Some things that we think will help us, they end up hurting us. Social media. We want to connect. We want to share our thoughts. We want to build community. And yet the more time we spend on social media, the research shows the more anxious, isolated, and polarized we tend to be. Exercise. And yet you can exercise to the extent where through over-exercise you can actually tear your muscles apart. Diet sodas. Drink them so that you're not drinking sugar, and yet, as research is showing, it's not that good for us. Worship? Isn't worship good, though? Isn't worship different than these categories? Because we're made for worship, right? The Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. Isn't that the heart of worship? Psalm 8, when talking about the wonder that God would create us with love and care for us, says, out of the mouth of babes, the Lord has ordained praise. We're made to worship. So shouldn't Paul be commending the Corinthians? They're gathering together for worship. It doesn't seem like they're struggling with what was happening among the community to whom the letter to the Hebrews was written. They're not failing to come together. But they are coming together. They are worshiping. We know that there is praying and that there is prophesying. And we know here that they're gathering to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So shouldn't Paul be happy? Yet despite regularly eating a meal together meant to be the Lord's Supper, this is what Paul says is happening when they assemble for worship. First of all, he says, I can't or I don't commend you. At the beginning of this section, as Paul begins to address these issues of worship, at the opening of chapter 11, he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. So Paul starts out with a word of commendation, the way that they are worshiping in some ways, what they are teaching in some ways, what they are doing is good. But here he says, I can't commend you. He says, not only can he not commend them, but when they gather together, it's not for their betterment, it's for their worse. He says, what they are eating is not the Lord's Supper. He repeats that he cannot commend them. He reveals that they are eating judgment on themselves, that there are those among them that are ill and weak, and some have died as a direct result of the way that they are celebrating the Lord's Supper. Let that sink in. Think of what it would have been like for a Corinthian to hear this letter read aloud to them, that the suffering happening to some of them that they would account as fellow brothers and sisters is because of eating the Lord's Supper. As we are preparing in a short while to do ourselves, let that sink in. Worship is weighty. Worship is life and death. The reason that there is death 
in the world, the reason that there is judgment and condemnation and hell is because Adam and Eve said that what they wanted, the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was worth more than the word of God. It should be no surprise that worship is so important because it is about whether we are aligning ourselves for or against the God of the universe, the God who made all life, the God who, despite our waywardness, who, despite our sin and rebellion, sent his son so that we could be reconciled to him, to be saved by him, to know him, to be restored to him, to what we were made to be, those who live with him, together with him, in worship of him. So worship is a big deal. Worship is a good thing. How could the worship of the Corinthians lead them into such danger and trouble? What's going on in Corinth? We read here of a congregation worshiping together, assembling together, eating the Lord's Supper in a state of division and disparity. They are divided from one another, and not only are they separated from each other, but the way in which they are treating one another is unequal. Some are treated one way, others treated another. In verse 18, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And we'll come back to the nature of some of those divisions, but that is not good that God's people are divided. Verse 21 through 22 gives us a better picture of what's happening. It tells us, For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, while one gets hungry and another gets drunk. And so what we understand from this passage, and especially when we think about how Romans got together as those who lived in Corinth, we begin to understand that, that first of all, they're going ahead with their own meal. And the language there is of not waiting of not waiting for the other people. So what seems to have happened is, normally when a group of people would get together for a meal, maybe if they were a guild, or they were a, a craftsman group, or a, you know, a, a, a group from within the community, they'd get together, and the rich and the powerful, they get together in the, the formal dining room. And, and the poor and the slaves, even if they were a part of that club, they, they would be outside. And so there is a physical distinction that, that one group seems to be separate from the other group. And not only are they likely to be physically separated, but separated in what they are receiving. It says, for in eating which one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? The point he's saying is, you have made this meal about a group of you getting your fill of food. And so what's likely happening is that the rich and powerful, perhaps the owners of the home where the people are gathering together or worship, are seeing that this meal that is associated with the celebration of the Lord's Supper has it that the best parts of meat, the best bread, the best drink is served to the powerful, to the rich, to the wealthy in the inner circle first, and then whatever is left over goes to the rest of the church. That as they've come together to eat and feast and they've associated the eating of that meal with the Lord's Supper, that they've allowed their practice of other meals, of other celebrations, of other forms of worship 
to dictate how the worship of God is happening. I don't think the Corinthians sought to worship for the worse. I don't think they set out to despise the church or to humiliate others. But their view of self, their view of what worship is, their view of others, imported from the world around them, has shaped how they gather and worship. And in their pride, they haven't examined themselves. They haven't asked, is this how God wants me to worship? Is this how God wants me to celebrate the Lord's Supper? Is the Lord's Supper what I assume it to be? Or is it something different from these other sacrificial meals I participated in the past? Pride assumes we know what's right, that we're doing what's right, because we're in the know. But humility, which is the right starting place for worship, doesn't presume, but examines discerns. That's where Paul wants them to end up. Not to assume that they're doing things the right way and that they should receive blessing because they're smart, because they're powerful and knowledgeable, but rather what he wants them to do, as verse 20 says, is to examine himself before eating and drinking, to discern the body and blood. Worship through the supper requires properly discerning the body. The Lord's Supper is to reshape our understanding of who we are so that we can then worship God aright. And so, therefore, as they come to the Lord's Supper, the Corinthians, and therefore, when we come to the Lord's Supper, if we understand what it truly is, what Jesus is showing us through the Lord's Supper, it transforms our understanding of who we are and who the people around us are and of what worship should be like. We are to discern the body through the lens of the supper so that we might take it aright, that we might worship aright as God's people. And so this morning, the Lord's Supper is going to help us get a picture of what it means to discern the body. And in the body, we see a new community, we see the Lord's community, and we see a united community. First, we see a new community. When I say the Lord's Supper points to a new community, it does so in kind of two senses. In one hand, it's new in distinction from prior cultural expectations. That is, what they were used to on daily life as Roman citizens. But also new as in the sense of the fulfillment of the old in Christ. First, verse 21 describes the situation in which they're at. It says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another goes drunk. Here's the thing. If you got to, went to a meal of the wool workers of Corinth, the carpenters of Corinth, the fish salesmen of Corinth, and they got together to have an assembly meal, this is what it would look like. There would be slaves there, there would be poor there, but there would be rich there. And the rich and the powerful would be served first in the special inward room, the less powerful in the outer room, and that often the celebration of this meal, which was supposed to promote their influence and their power, resulted in a lot of drinking, a lot of drunkenness, and the less than got the leftovers. See, the problem here is that they are doing what the Romans would have expected them to do. 
that they're looking at the lens of the Lord's Supper through the lens of every other meal that they've had when they assemble with other people for celebrations and festivals. The problem is they have not understood that this meal is not the same as that. It's a new meal. That the community of the church does not function according to the standards and norms of the culture around them. It's something new. Some of you this week, if you, if you follow popular culture at all, will notice that there's a strike. That there's a strike of actors and those in the Screen Actors Guild. And interesting enough, Fran Drescher, who played the nanny, shares a role that Ronald Reagan had as the head of the Screen Actors Guild. And she gave a speech this week when, because the actors are upset because of the new structuring of the deal where it seems like the CEOs are getting rich and we might think of a lot of rich actors, but the typical actor is not the all-powerful Tom Hanks or Tom Cruise, but there are tons of those who are struggling. And she said this, she decried that the actors are marginalized, disrespected, and dishonored. The Romans would not have said that. If there had been a Screen Actors Guild in Corinth, they would have expected the workers to have been treated differently. They would have expected the workers to get the leftovers. They would not have expected to receive respect or honor or to expect to not be on the margins. Christianity has changed what we expect about what community looks like because in Christ we see the value of one another. And so it's amazing that in today's age that we would expect those things and yet for the Romans who had not had the transforming influence of the gospel yet that they wouldn't expect this. And the problem is that the Corinthians are going with their expectations from the culture instead of the new and different accomplished by Christ. And one of the ways that this is revealed is the fact that Paul is describing what's happening. If you remember two weeks ago, Paul is talking about head coverings. And a lot of us, when we read the passage, we're scratching our heads because he doesn't go into much detail about what's going on. And the reason was, it was an issue that had been brought up to him. People had been asking him, hey, what should we do about this head covering situation? And so he gives a response, assuming that they know the shared information. But this issue... Paul brings up to them, he says, I've heard about this because it wasn't an issue to them. That they thought this was normal. They had not seen how the newness of what Christ had accomplished, the new community was supposed to be distinct. But in Christ, our standing is leveled. We may continue to have different wealth levels or classes or levels of education. We might have different ethnic backgrounds, but none of those things make us greater or lesser in standing before God because in Christ, we are a new creation. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the gathering of God's people in worship, the gathering of God's people around the meal that pointed to the sacrifice of Christ, which was the means of their salvation, was supposed to be the moment where that was most evident to them. That what mattered was not who they had been who they were outside the walls of the church, but what mattered was how they were made new in Christ. We are a new community that is defined not by the standards of the world, but the definition of the community by Christ. 
Which brings us also to this language of new covenant. In recounting Jesus' words of institution, we hear that the cup is the new covenant in his blood. In the old covenant, sacrifices of bulls and lambs were offered so that people could receive the forgiveness offered by God at the temple. But the old covenant was supposed to point to the new covenant, to point towards Jesus, who accomplished what the blood of bulls and lambs could never accomplish, the once and for all forgiveness of sins. We're not supposed to be a community of consumption, where he who has the most to offer gets the most in return. Rather, we are a new community based not on the merits of what we have done, but formed by Christ through his body and blood. And so we need to ask when we gather for worship, when we gather around the Lord's Supper, what might we be bringing in from the world and assuming is the way that the church or worship or the Christian community is supposed to be? What old things are we importing to the new community of God's people? Perhaps it's the world's definition of who is important. Do we think in the church that the most important should be the wealthy or the attractive or the educated? Is our definition of successful that which should define who should have prominence in the church? Do we assume that prominence in the church should look like prominence in the world? This was one of the struggles for the Corinthians. They looked at Paul, who was an apostle, and they said, yeah, you look kind of scraggly, Paul. You're kind of beaten up, Paul. You're not standing loud and proud with great eloquence and acumen and wealth and comfort. Are you sure you are an apostle with the authority of Christ? Because they assumed that prominence looked like security and comfort and power. If we understand the newness of the community formed by the body and blood of Christ, it needs to reshape our consumer culture view of the church. The church is not a good that we are here to consume. Worship is an investment, but it's not an investment that we are supposed to evaluate through the lens of personal return compared against other consumer experiences. On any given Sunday, are we saying, are we comparing the investment of the time and energy and cost of worship to gather with God's people against what fun or freedom or benefit that we'll get from doing something else? Are we saying, well, I'll, I'll come to worship when it feels like I get more out of it than if I got a few more hours of sleep or if I took time to uh, finish my yard or do some shopping or take extra vacation? Is our view of, of church that it's something there for our promotion or are we coming into it according to what Christ has done? Are we doing the same thing with God's people? Are we asking, who here is worth the investment of my time? Who looks worthy of my respect and attention instead of saying, this community is those formed by the blood of Christ? We are a new community not according to the standards or practices of the world. Our worship is not according to the dictates of the world because it is formed by Christ, and therefore it's the Lord's community. In verse 20, Paul says what they're eating is not the Lord's Supper. When we 
celebrate the Lord's Supper, we often use different names. We talk about it in some uh, places as the Eucharist because it's a Thanksgiving meal. We talk about it as through the lens of communion because it reflects our shared union with Christ. But of those titles that we use, the only one that we actually find in Scripture used to describe this meal is this one, the Lord's Supper. The definition that this meal is the Lord's as a reflection of the fact that the community gathered around this meal is the Lord's. Paul brings attention to that because he is contrasting the fact that it is the Lord's Supper with the way that they are going about it. That it's their meal. That it's their opportunity to fill themselves up. That it's according to what's convenient for them, according to their own expectations. But when Paul says, this is the Lord's Supper, it begins to remind us that we are the Lord's community. It calls us to consider whose meal it is and how we should go about it. First and foremost, it's His meal, and we are His community, the Lord's, because we were formed by His initiative. Jesus, in the offering of the Lord's Supper, on the night that he constitutes, it says, this is my body, which is for you. This is my blood poured out for you. We are not a collection of people that said, you know what, we have a lot of common interests. I like you, you like me. We like the same things, we like the same people. Let's get together and build a community. The community that we have, whether at this church, whether any church that gathers is a community that has been gathered by the initiative of the Lord, who saw us wandering in our sin and sent His Son into the world, who Jesus, who comes and calls us by His Spirit to Himself to provide what we need in the offering of His body and the offering of His blood for the forgiveness of sins. We are the Lord's community because we are formed by His initiative. And we are also, therefore, under his authority. Paul is instructing the church here. He's saying, this is how you should understand the Lord's Supper. This is how you should worship. But Paul says that the authority by which he is telling them what to do starts with Christ. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. He reflects what the other gospel passages say, that Jesus is offering the meal and that Jesus is the Lord of the meal. That the authority for how it is supposed to be celebrated is not the cultural norms, is not personal preference, but the authority of God. Which, if this is a form of worship, shouldn't surprise us because in the Old Testament, God was very clear that he was to be worshipped the way that he said he was to be worshipped. That the the people of God couldn't introduce their own sacrifices. They couldn't burn strange incense. They couldn't worship God through the practices of their pagan neighbors, that they had to worship God according to his commands. So therefore, if this is the Lord's Supper for the Lord's community, then we need to do it in submission to his authority. And therefore, when we don't, we shouldn't be surprised when his authority is displayed through discipline. This kind of explains what Paul says when he says, there's divisions among you, but I'm not really surprised. 
right? Verse 18, it says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, earlier in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul is addressing their tendency to break into factions and say, I support Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul. Paul doesn't seem to think that that's a good thing. Paul is very strong in his response to that in the early chapters of the letter. It seems that what Paul is reflecting on here is not that tendency to say, I support this person and I support this person, but the reflection of what Jesus said in Matthew 10, that in the last days there would be division because there would be some for Christ and that there would be some against him. And then at the end of that discussion of the end times and the division that would come as a result of following after him, one of the things that Jesus points out is that those who follow him will be evidenced by those who care for the least of these. And so Paul is saying, there's factions among you because some of you are displaying that you are not true followers of Christ by the way that you are failing to care for the least of these. Jesus said this would happen in the last days, and so I believe that it's happening among you because some of you are showing that you don't need know Jesus in the way that you treat others. And since this is the Lord's meal for the Lord's people, he responds through discipline. Some people have died. Some people are sick. But the purpose of this is because God cares for his people. Paul says, I want you to examine yourselves. He says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. If you would take the time to examine how you are practicing, how you are treating one another, how the Lord's Supper is understood and executed, then they wouldn't receive this discipline. But why are they being disciplined? so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Even as Jesus' authority is being exercised through the discipline of those who are mistaking the meal, it is for the sake of preserving the church. He says, you are my church. I have bought you by my blood. I am unwilling to allow you to wander through your ignorance, through your pride, through your apathy, to your destruction, and so that I will act in discipline, so that you will not be condemned on the last day. Verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming again, and that's good news for us that are in Christ who are looking to his body and his blood given for us, but it's bad news for those who do not walk in faith in Christ. The establishment of the new heavens and the new earth is preceded by judgment. The division of the wheat and the tares, and the destruction of the chaff. And so God prepares us for that by disciplining us when we wander into making worship about us, or our desires, or our preferences, instead of about Him. It means that the meal is for His people. We're told to examine ourselves to first and foremost ask ourselves, are we a Christian? Do I know the Lord? Am I doing this as a celebration of Him? To then ask, am I walking in a way that is pleasing to the Lord? He then follows it up with an encouragement that they discern the body. 
And in one sense, that is an understanding of, yes, do I understand that the bread represents the body of Christ? But more so, what he's pointing to, do we discern that those around us are the body of Christ? As Paul had said earlier in the letter, just a chapter before this, we who are many are one, for we all share the same loaf. We're one body. Do you recognize that the people around you are one body? This helps us understand why being barred from the table is a form of discipline. It's a cause for self-examination and discernment over the effects of sin, but also so that they would be preserved from further harm to themselves and further harm to God's people. And so the result is we can't separate the worship of Jesus and our relationship with Jesus from our relationship to those who belong to Jesus. We cannot worship according to our preferences, but our worship is meant to be in response to his design, according to what his word says. You know, even in the situation that Paul is describing, even if the division of the meal, some people eating out there, some people eating ahead before others, even if it was primarily logistical, well, it's hard to have enough of the people here to gather together or or it's hard for us to eat all at once, even if it was logistical, that wasn't acceptable because what they were communicating in that meal was logistics matter more than the command of Christ. also means when we look around at those gathered around the table, we are seeing those who belong to Jesus, whom Jesus came to earth to save, whom he died for, whom he rose for, whom he is coming back for, who he is sustaining now by his spirit and his truth. They are his body, his community for which his body was broken and his blood poured out to be made whole. Which also means if you are here this morning and you feel like you don't belong, that in the celebration of worship in the Lord's Supper is a reminder that your belonging here this morning is not based on whether you feel that you do, but what Christ has done for you. Some of you might say, I, I don't have the same experiences as those around me. I'm not in the same life situation. I don't know if people understand who I am or what's going on in my life. We don't share the same interests. And it's not that those things don't matter, but those things do not define whether you belong. What matters for your belonging is that Christ gave his body and blood to make you his. Even when the church fails to treat you as if you belong, that does not change your standing with Christ who gave himself for you. Even when the church fails to treat you as his by failing to recognize that because you are his, you are theirs, you still belong. Which then causes us to consider whether we act as those that belong to Christ and thus as those that belong to one another. The last thing that the Lord's Supper is meant to show us when we receive it aright, when we celebrate it aright, is that we are a united community. Throughout the letter, Paul has had to address the reality of the communion of saints. That is, that we belong to one another, that we're connected to one another because we're connected to Christ. First of all, he said that divisions and factions are not good. You can't say, I follow Christ and I follow Apollos and I follow Peter. That's wrong. It hurts the body of Christ. You are meant to be one. He had to address the fact that the sexual sin of 
individuals reflected on the spiritual life of the community as a whole. That the offering of lawsuits against one another was destructive to the whole. That they needed to realize that when they ate meat sacrificed to idols, it wasn't just a reflection of their sense of spiritual understanding, but it could have harmful impacts on others, including those in the church. Pride and selfishness have continued to blind them to the impact of their actions and beliefs and practices on the rest of the body of Christ. But how we treat God's people matters because we are united to one another through our union to Christ. And so when we disconnect the Lord's Supper, when we disconnect our worship of God from how we are connected to one another in Christ, it's an issue not just because we're disobeying the explicit commands of Christ to love one another, to serve one another, to consider one another. We're also lying. When we act as if it's just for me, it's just about me, what's happening to that brother or happening to that sister doesn't have bearing on me, we are lying about what Christ has accomplished. That he has made us one in himself. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Not are supposed to be one body, we are one body. And so this passage is an unpacking of those implications that we can't separate ourselves from each other. That the taking of the Lord's Supper should display the reality that we are together, the reality that we are united. That's why we're supposed to take it at the same time together, eating from the same meal. Not because eating at the same time or drinking at the same time makes us united, but because it's supposed to reflect our union. It points to the spiritual reality that we are united to one another in Christ. And the spiritual nourishment we receive in the Lord's Supper should be received in that manner together. But it's not just about how and when we take the Lord's Supper, but the bigger picture of the relationship between God's people and the worship of God. Verse 27 is the warning. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. You can't say, hey God, I, I, I'm coming to worship. I, I'm rejecting the false gods. I, I'm, I'm following Jesus. We're good. While letting your brother and sister go hungry, waiting on the Lord's Supper in the next room. How we treat one another, even outside worship, before worship, follows us in and impacts our ability to worship God. Paul is saying, if you eat in an unworthy manner in the way that you are treating others, you are guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. It is as if you are attacking Christ himself. The issue is not just that you are supposed to act united, but you are in Christ. And therefore, the way you act as an individual Christian and the way you treat other Christians are inevitably intertwined. This is not a new thing. Jesus said this. In Matthew 5, he says, if you are going to make an offering and you remember that your brother is angry with you, you are supposed to set aside the offering and go and reconcile. He says, how can you expect to go enjoy fellowship with God while you are at odds with your neighbor? Even in the Old Testament, the worship of God and the ability to worship God was connected with how they treated others. In Micah 6, it says this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is overly generous, overly exultant, high worship. And the response is, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? How can you expect to give God these lavish gifts if you won't humbly and justly walk in kindness with your neighbor? Our actions never could make us one, though. So Christ did it for us. The question is not, will we make ourselves united but will we act as those who are? It means we are to eat together, to eat the same meal at the same time, but also to worship together, to live together, to relate together in that unity that Christ has accomplished that is on display when we take the Lord's Supper. The unity means that our lives together matter, that we need to know each other, to care for one another, to know what's going on in each other's lives, to bear one another's burdens and not allow the conflicts and the difficulties that inevitably come up to stand in the way we seek reconciliation. Let me put it this way. One must ask if they are truly celebrating the Lord's Supper, if they are consistently avoiding eye contact or conversation with certain people after the worship service. But we can be united because the person is the Lord's. And we don't need to live according to the old ways, but the new. Let me conclude by, by pointing to this. Next week I'll celebrate wearing a wedding ring for 15 years. But you all know that the significance of being married for 15 years is not the symbol on my finger that I could wear this ring for 15 years and be harming my marriage, be hurting. But the ring is supposed to point to what the marriage is supposed to be, the changing of my own identity and the old ways into a new family, a new relationship. No longer living for myself, but honoring Christ in the way that I love my wife, in living out of unity to her. That the wearing of the ring is not the issue, but the life consistent with what the ring points to, that I am not mine, but as my ring says, that I am Rebecca's. And so we are to come to the Lord's Supper and not say, did I take the Lord's Supper? Do I have it all the time? Did I remember to have bread and a cup? Or is it to celebrate it and to come to it because it is a picture of what Christ has done? To change our identity, to make us a new community, not according to the standards of the world, but according to what he has accomplished by the blood. To live not according to our own ways, but to live as those who belong to the Lord and as those united in him. Enjoy that unity in the way that we treat one another. As we prepare to go to the Lord's Supper would we do so as his new people, those that belong to the Lord, united in him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you make us one in Christ. As we come to celebrate the supper, would we receive what you have offered us? In Jesus' name, amen.